The alarm bells had been sounding for days. Forecasts predicted Hurricane Harvey would cause catastrophic flooding across Texas. And by the time the storm hit the Texas Gulf Coast, Governor Greg Abbott was warning of the wreckage to come. It's a situation that has been evolving. One from a fairly difficult to ascertain tropical storm into one that's turned into a very complex and dangerous hurricane. And he was right. Hurricane Harvey barreling into the Texas coastline. It's the first Category 4 storm to hit the U.S. in over a decade. The flooding being described as apocalyptic. More than 1,200 people have been rescued so far. And everybody's lost so much, and it still keeps continuing to rain. The storm left 68 people dead and destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses. Damage estimates are in the billions. But the rebuilding process requires manpower, and in Texas, that need is often filled by undocumented immigrants. On this week's episode, Abby Avrigenia talks with James Barragan of the Dallas Morning News about his reporting that found Texas officials failed to protect workers from wage theft after Harvey. These are low-wage workers. They don't have the high levels of education attainment. So often these are the only jobs available to them, and they're lured in with promises of high pay. And then when that pay doesn't come, they hardly have someone to turn to. James scoured the state for workers who were often hard to pin down. Some had resorted to extreme measures, like pawning jewelry to make up for lost wages. And James found the commission tasked with investigating these claims was understaffed and underprepared, making it difficult to know how many workers contributing to Harvey recovery were victims and to what degree. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. A 100-year storm brought 60 inches of rain to some parts of the coast. And when Hurricane Harvey barreled through Texas in August 2017, journalists from across the country mobilized to cover it. One of them was James Bedagon, a statehouse reporter from the Dallas Morning News based in Austin. Covering the hurricane was something I'll, I'll never forget. It was, it was my first time covering a hurricane. And I was out there for five days, and I always tell people I, I didn't see the sun for five days. It was constantly raining. The streets were flooded. We were riding around in a big F-150 pickup truck, and we kept getting stuck. There were just roads that were so flooded that we could not cross. Estimates say the hurricane caused $125 billion worth of damage. I saw all the devastation that happened there and then realized that there's going to be a a long, hard road toward rebuilding. But our story really starts before Harvey even made landfall, when a couple of factors combined to lay the groundwork for what would become an investigation into worker exploitation and wage theft. First, scrutiny around undocumented immigrants was intensifying. The Texas legislature passed a bill banning sanctuary cities, which meant police could ask someone about their immigration status during any interaction. There was a lot of, I think, outrage and fear from a lot of people who would be affected. We have um, the second highest population of undocumented immigrants here in Texas, which means that there are a lot of undocumented immigrants in the state. The Trump administration was also cracking down on immigration. 
They had ramped up uh, patrolling of the border. They had ramped up ICE enforcement. It was just one thing on top of another. Then, James was chosen as an investigative fellow at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. The program is designed to help journalists of color work on their investigative skills, giving them the support needed to do an investigation and ultimately to increase diversity in the field. James covers the intersection of immigration, border security, and politics. And he'd been wanting to look at undocumented labor in the construction industry. You know, we hear a lot of stories about Hurricane Harvey and what's happened and what's left to do and a lot of the homeowners who who still need a lot of help. But we hardly ever hear about the workers who have helped rebuild the state and who I think any good Texan, any person of goodwill would think deserve to be paid for helping the state through such a difficult natural disaster. And their stories are hardly ever told. Ever since Hurricane Katrina, officials have known that wage theft increases after a natural disaster. And James found that Texas did very little to protect workers after Harvey, both legal and undocumented. Workers were underpaid or not paid at all. When they were cheated, they didn't know where to go for help. And a heightened fear of deportation meant those who needed the most help were the most reluctant to ask for it. And even before the hurricane, Texas needed a lot of workers. One poll said the state had a shortage of more than 600,000. A study by labor groups found that about three-fourths of day laborers who worked on Harvey recovery efforts in Houston were immigrants, many of them undocumented. Of course, it's, it's illegal for construction companies to hire somebody if they are undocumented, but these companies do it anyway. Often they pay people under the table or under assumed names, and so then it becomes easier for them to cheat them and, and exploit them. But theft is happening to legal workers, too. So it happens to everybody. What wage theft and exploitation of workers does is that it keeps wages low, which means that other people don't want to get into the business because it's difficult work. Workers spend 10 or 12 hours in the hot sun tearing down moldy walls and moving debris. And then when payday came, some of them found that their paychecks were short or that they didn't get one at all. The construction companies involved often blamed each other for the money that wasn't paid out. They're lured in with promises of high pay, and then when that pay doesn't come, they hardly have someone to turn to. And so this just creates a cycle of abuse and wage theft that just keeps going and going, and there's nobody nobody around to stop it. There's an agency that's supposed to stop it, the Texas Workforce Commission. But when labor groups commissioned a study of more than 350 workers after the hurricane, they found that not a single one of them knew they could turn to the office for help. The people that we interviewed and documented had wages stolen uh, between $500 and $4,000, which maybe to me and you is not a whole lot of money, but to these workers, that's the difference between making the rent and putting food on the table for their families and not being able to do that. Under state law, the attorney general could sue those employers, but James says the wages weren't high enough to interest the AG. So it's the job of the Texas Workforce Commission to investigate wage claims. It's also their job to discourage theft in the first place. But like government agencies across the country, their resources are limited. 
the Department of Labor advises them to do the most with what they have. That means teaming up with worker centers. That means teaming up with nonprofits. That means uh, doing media and advertising campaigns uh, to let the public know that wage theft is a crime, that they can get help at the Department of Labor, and they do this frequently. Um, They do it especially in Spanish. They go on Spanish-language television, newspapers, radio. They do this because they know that is the best way to reach their workers and the people who are likely to have had their wages stolen. The Texas Workforce Commission does none of that. They are passive. They wait for claims to come to them. A spokeswoman for the Texas Workforce Commission said the agency sent flyers on how to file claims in both English and Spanish to its local offices and made a page on its website dedicated to Hurricane Harvey. When claims do come in, the agency is also understaffed to handle them. The TWC gets more than 13,000 claims a year on average, but only has 19 labor law investigators on staff. That means each investigator is assigned almost 700 cases a year. And that would help explain why investigations take months, why people don't know if they've won their investigation for months, and why even after they win their investigations, they don't know if they'll ever get their money for even a couple more months. And some never actually do get their payback. Now that he understood the scope of the problem, James had to find workers who experienced wage theft. He reached out to some of the groups that advocated for workers and found a few sources that way, but he also submitted records requests to the Texas Workforce Commission for wage claims filed by workers. We also had to go digging for a needle in a haystack, really, because we had to records request wage claims for I don't even know how many zip codes we included in this records request, but it was for the entire southeast coast of Texas where the Hurricane Harvey hit. It was nearly 300 miles of the coast, which turned up 265 pages of records. But the way Texas collects its data on wage theft doesn't lend itself to a tidy analysis. The claims aren't sorted by industry. So James requested all the claims filed in a three-month period and began filtering them down by hand. I had to then pour through and try to find which ones were related to Hurricane Harvey. So after hurricanes, you got to do a lot of demolition. you got to do drywall. you got to do construction. you got to do roofing. So I tried to look for any of them that said drywall, roofing, construction, anything related to that. He also noticed that there were multiple claims filed against a few companies. That's when I figured, oh, there must be something there, because why would so many people be making claims against this one person? When he found a claim that looked like it was tied to hurricane recovery, he'd put in another request for the investigative file from the case. Those files had the name, phone number, and address of the person who'd filed the claim. But the nature of construction work meant it was hard to pin people down. A lot of these construction workers, they're transient, so they just follow the work. So... The addresses that a lot of them put down in the wage claims were just their temporary addresses that they were using while they were working on the construction project. And the phone numbers that they were using were also transient phone numbers. So sometimes by the time I called, it was like, I'm looking for, you know, Johnny Smith. And they're like, no, Johnny Smith at this phone number. This is a new number. I just got it. James works in Austin, but his investigation covered workers in southeast Texas. That meant he had to do all his initial sourcing over the phone. 
So it was just me cold calling and saying, like, hi, Guillermo, do you remember last year around September or October you worked at this construction site and then you filed a wage claim because they didn't pay you your money? His experience on the immigration beat was key. He didn't want a potential source to misunderstand who he was. So he decided not to leave voicemails if someone didn't answer. My fear was, okay, if I leave a voicemail message and this person, like, gets scared off, they think I'm, like, coming after them or something, like, they're not going to call me back. So initially, I was just calling people, cold calling people, and if I got someone on the phone, great. If I didn't, I would just call them back another day. And one conversation usually led to another. When I was able to get someone on the phone, it was great because they would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, someone did not pay me my money. They still owe me that money. And so it was great because then you had that one phone call conversation to build a rapport off of. And you could say, well, I'm looking into this. Can I call you back, you know, in a week or so? And then after that, I could say, you know, I'm going to be coming down to Houston or Corpus Christi in a couple of weeks. Would it be okay if we met? Would it be okay if we brought someone to take pictures? And that helped develop a rapport. He used another strategy to develop sources, too. I don't know what it is about texting. Actually, another another coworker recommended it to me, but he was like, you should you should text people because it makes them feel more comfortable. And I don't know what it was about it. Like, I, I would text people, and they would reply to me much easier, and they, would, they were way easier to get a hold of, and then they would start texting me. <laughs> James connected with one woman, Melinda Brown, who had her wages stolen. Brown was the office manager for a construction company with a history of state and federal wage violations. In February, the Texas Workforce Commission said Brown's employer violated state law by not paying her, but she still hasn't received all the money she's owed, more than $4,000. The owner of the company says he paid her, but state records contradict that. She told James the situation caused her to fall behind on her bills. By the point we ran the story, she was sort of, she was giving up hope that she would ever get that money. She'd pawned a lot of family items. She'd pawned her wedding ring and she'd pawned a charm bracelet that had cost her $400 and had charms that represented each of her grandkids, her marriage. And she told me, yeah, I'm on the verge of tears just talking to you about it because I don't think I'm ever going to get my money back and look at all I've lost. And I, I don't think I want my wage claim and I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to get it back. In May, James asked the Texas Workforce Commission for an interview to gather some basic information. I wanted to figure out how their wage claim process worked, if there were any failings or if they felt that there might be failings in their system, where those might be, what things could be done better. That's what we were really looking for. Their response was lackluster. They sent us back an email with just main talking points that I had already found on their website. And I said, this is this is not what I'm looking for. I'd really like to do an interview with you all. A few weeks passed before someone got back to him. At this point, he was still deep in the reporting process. I hadn't found all my findings yet. Like, I hadn't nailed them down. By the time he followed up with the commission in June, he was ready to get into details. I would say, you know, I'm starting to get much more specific questions. I think we really ought to sit down. I think we should sit down with the person in your agency that's in charge of this. And the spokeswoman said, no, I think I'm going to be the person who gives you the interview. And as I kept having more and more findings, I kept having more and more questions and more really detailed questions about how their process worked. He got the interview, but just with the commission spokeswoman. 
I guess she didn't know how much I had already learned about the system because she kept telling me, well, you know, the wage claim, you know, these interviews between the investigators from the state, they're done in person. And I told her, Why? well, they're not done in person, right? And she said, yeah, there's a person who does them. And I said, yeah, but they're they're done over the phone. Like, they're not actually done in person. And then she had to admit, like, oh, yeah, yeah, so they're done over the phone. And so, like, that was, like, maybe the second or third question. And after that, it just kept rolling like that, where I would ask very pointed questions of how the wage claim process worked. And she would just say, you know, I don't I don't have an answer for that. I'm going to have to get back to you. And there was a lot of that. The Texas Workforce Commission said it didn't see a spike in wage claims after the hurricane. But the Dallas Morning News and Reveal found 19 cases where workers weren't paid their wages. And that's likely just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of these people that we talked to, like, we had the wage claim, we knew that it happened to them, and then they were like, oh yeah, but like there's two or three other people who I know that they didn't file a wage claim. So that's how we know that there's like a lot more of these cases, but not necessarily all of them are being reported. It wasn't possible to find out how much money went unpaid to workers after Hurricane Harvey. Privacy laws here in Texas prohibit us from knowing through an open records request how much money was actually paid out to the workers in the instances that they were paid out or when they are owed money that amount of money is redacted in the documents. The state didn't track cases of unpaid wages related to the storm's recovery. Still, they were able to shed light on the problem through other reporting channels. One worker center in Houston received 30 calls in a six-month period reporting more than $109,000 in unpaid wages. But the lack of a definitive total didn't stop James from doing the story. At a certain point, when you've got workers telling you the exact same thing over and over and over again, the exact same pattern, the exact same people, the exact same tactics, I think that you can, you can illustrate for the reader at least an example or pretty close approach to what is going on. We'll have to see if lawmakers decide to change the system. In recent legislative sessions, a few different bills to protect workers have stalled. In many cases, an employer can fire a worker for filing a wage claim and face no legal consequences. Some legislators told James they're going to push for these bills again when the session starts in January. But many officials haven't commented at all. There's not really been a response from statewide lawmakers. You know, the governor's office hasn't called us. The lieutenant governor's office hasn't called us. The House Speaker, none of those big, powerful positions have gone to bat for workers or said that they are going to look into this. The Texas Workforce Commission hasn't publicly acknowledged the story since it came out. But Melinda Brown, the wage theft victim who told James she pawned her wedding ring, she did get some of her money back after the story ran. She got her partial payment in the mail and drove straight to the pawn shop and got her wedding ring back. And she said that she believes that it was because of our story. And, and that just kind of tells you public pressure does work where sometimes the state's enforcement abilities are lacking. If you make it public that companies are not paying their workers, that puts some pressure on those companies to clean up their act. The investigation shed light on an underreported problem, and James says there are similar stories waiting to be told in communities across the country. 
it's going to take some some digging, but the stories are there because this this does happen, especially if you have large populations of undocumented immigrants. I bet you that there's going to be a lot of wage theft going on in those areas. And if it's happening to undocumented workers, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's happening to other workers. It's a it's a worthwhile endeavor. And these are stories of working class people that hardly ever get told. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the Dallas Morning News' reporting and resources for investigating after natural disasters. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. On our next episode, Pamela Koloff, a senior reporter at ProPublica and writer-at-large for the New York Times Magazine, discusses her investigation into a little-known arm of forensic science known as bloodstain pattern analysis. She dug into a decades-old case in which the flimsy methodology may have put an innocent man behind bars. And then these experts were brought in who have, you know, all sorts of scientific-sounding terminology and tell the jury in a very authoritative way I looked at the blood spatter at this murder scene, and I can tell you definitively what happened. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Abby Evergangia reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.